Hi everyone, just a heads up that on today's episode of Friendly Fire, John sounds a little bit different. And that's because at the time of this recording, he was inside a real 1940s American submarine. Now please, enjoy the show. The notorious Japanese destroyer captain, Bungo Pete, sank P.J. Richardson's previous submarine. And at the start of tonight's film, we find the captain, played by Clark Gable, skippering a desk job and desperate for a new command. After a year's wait, he gets his new sub, but the revenge won't come easy for this World War II naval captain. His new crew are loyal to the executive officer, played by Burt Lancaster, and they're worried that Gable's vendetta is driving him to violate his orders and enter the dangerous straits where his last submarine met its untimely end. Soon, the sea boils with the captain's bloodlust and the conflict between the two highest-ranking officers on the boat. Director Robert Wise's black-and-white nail-biter was released in 1958 to critical praise and is recognized now as showing highly realistic depictions of submarine combat. Today on Friendly Fire, run silent, run deep. You're listening to Friendly Fire, a movie podcast where we watch war movies. That is such a good introduction. I feel like I kind of started that that uh, that introduction the way the captain of the submarine starts his movie in this uh, in this episode because mm-hmm. we watched uh, Run Silent, Run Deep, a movie that I'm almost positive cast Clark Gable purely for his line reading of the word dive. Oh my God, <laughs> he is so great at that word. <laughs> So what we have here is a vengeance movie, right? Uh, this is this is a lot different from the first movie we saw. This is a this is about a man hunting his white whale, and by white <laughs> whale I mean Japanese captain. I think the Wikipedia article is saying that it's it's uh, Moby Dick meets Mutiny on the Bounty, which I really liked as a as a as a mash 'em up concept. This is our first submarine movie, and submarine movies really have kind of a special place in the war movie pantheon, I think, because they're so, they're about such weird, a weird part of war. They're all the same. There's always a conflict between the executive officer and the captain. There's always, somebody's, somebody's always gunning for somebody. There's intrigue. There are no women. There, there's, uh, there's the depth charge scene. I like that they look up when there's the depth charge because it's like there's nothing up there. There's just pipes to look at, but you got to look at something, I guess. The scene that always blew my little kid mind when I watched this movie was the idea that a depth charge could clank off of the hull and then scoot off of the side and then blow up. That was no less mind blowing when I watched it again. It's the vengeance. The vengeance aspect of this movie was interesting to me because unlike a lot of vengeance movies, only the captain had the vengeance going. But he didn't reveal it. It really, like, begins by making the captain the enemy in a really fun way, in an interesting way, I think. You know, like, Gable's Captain Richardson is working a desk job, and he wants to get back out on the sea after getting his sub blown up in the very first scene. And he basically steals command of this sub that's about to go out from the guy who's rightfully supposed to be the captain, and and the way he the way he backs it up, like when when Burt Lancaster comes around to 
to ask to be taken off the ship. You know, his 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 point is like the men are really going to resent the situation because they like me and they don't know you from Adam. So just move me to another boat and you'll have an easier time kind of making it your own command, making it your own thing. And it's revealed in that moment that the only way Commander Richardson convinced the uh, the brass to let him get this boat was if somebody as capable of as uh, as Bledsoe was on it. It's pretty cold-blooded. Yeah. <laughs> And I love how Bledsoe basically tells Richardson's wife that, like, he's he's more or less not going to look out for him while they're at sea. That was fun. She didn't deserve that. She said, look out for him. And he said, oh, I'll look out or something yeah. like that, where I was like, OK. Like, she's nice enough to give him some uh, some gin and tonic and lemonade. That's no way to treat a wife. Take good care of my husband. I'll take care of my it's got to be so awkward when he comes back and it's like, well, yeah, so <laughs> as predicted. But really, we came to be good friends at the end. Don't worry. You'll just have to believe me. Yeah, I was struck from the moment Clark Gable arrived on the scene, how old he looked. And in fact, yeah. he was mm-hmm. like 58 when they were filming this movie. And that, frankly, seems a little old for a submarine captain. Typically, like destroyers and stuff were being handed over to 22 year olds and 23 year olds like here you go here's your boat good luck <laughs> and i don't know how many like like how old was Patton? i think that offers another sort of conflict between the captain and the crew though not only is he a guy the crew views as someone who has taken the command in a way that they don't agree with they, he's stolen command but also he's sort of like old manning it around you know, like throwing his weight around, throwing his experience around without much explanation. Cable looked like he was dying for real. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I absolutely loved the the best part was when the when the doctor was examining him and he was like, Ugh, and the doctor said, listen, you have a head injury. That's a lot of, I mean, I could describe it to you with a lot of medical mumbo jumbo, but basically what it is is a very cinematic disease that's going to cause you to die in the final act of the film. Like he actually said, he actually said, I mean, I can tell you what it is, yeah. but what it is, is just some strange concussion that will, that basically is going to ensure that, that you die, but not before you have a chance, you know, to fire the kill shot on the, on the bad guy. Not before your, your wealth of experience can redeem you in the, in the final moments. Well, and what's crazy is that Clark Gable died like a year later or two years later. Really? After, yeah, he's. This is like not his final film, but but this is this is close to the end of Clark Gable. Was he the biggest movie star in the world at this time? He was the biggest movie star in the world in like 1938. Oh. Uh, but he was one. He said, I think, uh, at one point that whenever his career waned a little bit, there would always in some some part of the country there would be a revival of Gone with the Wind, mm. where they would. <laughs> They'd, you know, they'd bring it back out and play it in the local theater and then his career would take off again because it was the, it was the evergreen for him. I think Burt Lancaster was a pretty hot tamale when this movie came out, right? Yes. He he like produced. Yeah. He's sort of doing the, the Brad Pitt thing, you know, with the acting and the producing of the films that he's in. Well, it's cool too, that this was, this was actually a thing of the era where they would mate two male stars. And they would do several films together, not necessarily buddy pictures, but like these two guys would 
would be in films together and one of them would be the boss and the other would be the employee or one would be the the cop and the other would be the the criminal and that was a that was sort of a hollywood um kind of template i i also love that like there's a little bit of a generation divide between them you know burt lancaster gets to have some some clark gable prestige and clark, mm-hmm. G- clark gable gets to have some burt lancaster hotness get some exactly. of that burt lancaster on you <laughs> you don't take a bath for weeks after that you just want to set in it well, it keeps your coat glossy. Right. But but uh but I thought yeah, also, you know, nineteen fifty eight when this movie was made was fifteen years after the events of the of the film take place. But they made it in black and white and you know, this is well into the color movie years. Yeah, it's an interesting like blend of like there's definitely some techniques that didn't exist in the black and white era, like the, the miniatures. They did give it like a nice old timey look. A funny thing about those miniatures is that all of those scenes were shot in the Sultan Sea. Could you imagine? <laughs> Gross. Yeah. Like, was there ever a time where the Sultan Sea was clear enough to shoot miniatures in? Hard to believe. <laughs> the Sultan Sea was like a gorgeous, like exotic resort community that all of Hollywood's finest stars went out and there were glamorous hotels and it was a it was like a it was the place and now it's just a garbage pile well the only the reason it's a garbage pile is that you know not only did all the fertilizer and uh, all the chemicals kind of run off into the salton sea which didn't have the thing about the salton sea because it was an unnatural sea mm-hmm. it didn't have an outlet yeah so there was no way, way for stuff to run out. And then it sat there in the desert and evaporated because yeah. it didn't have an inlet. It turned into a syrup. Yeah, and it just got more and more concentrated with salt and heavy metal. And now the only thing that can live in the Salton Sea are tilapia. Is that what makes them so delicious? <laughs> mm-hmm. It has a population of something like 100 billion tilapia or something. Wow. But uh, yeah, at the time, it was, it was the real jam. This movie leads off with a scene where their submarine... Takes a uh, takes a hit from the Japanese destroyer that is uh, is the white whale ultimately, and uh, and then it like cuts to the captain and a bunch of the sailors from that submarine floating on the surface waiting for a rescue, and I've, I I feel like this is the only submarine movie I can think of where the idea of having the ship destroyed is not like definitely going to kill all hands. I wondered about that too when when they were like floating on whatever random pieces of picnic table and stuff. I was <laughs> yeah. like, well, first of all, how did they get out of the sub, which had in that scene was diving to escape the the destroyer? So they were at like three hundred feet, right? I don't think that deep, but they were certainly headed down. And then also, where did this picnic table come from? Or what is this stuff, this flotsam that's floating? There's nothing on a submarine. And why didn't we get the scene where the Catalina lands and picks them up? Like we we missed the rescue. I don't think it was. I don't think it was necessary for the to to push the plot along. But this movie makes some interesting choices in terms of what it shows you and what it doesn't. Like kind of a lot happens off screen. There's this rescue, and also, like. The last two minutes of the movie do the same thing. There's this jump in time. Uh-huh. You don't see the captain uh-huh. die. Then they're just flinging him into the water. Roll credits. Yeah. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> goodbye. Oh, she's headed down. And that's right. And the, you, don't see the, you don't see the sub come back into Pearl and 
and get the Star Spangled Banner. The sub is under attack by airplanes, and they jump cut to the scene where they bury him at sea. It, like, yeah. Yeah. I don't think you could get away with that with a modern film. Well, it's really interesting to... I hate to keep coming back to 1958, but that is height of the Cold War, right? I mean, when you think about when you think about MASH being made about the Korean War, but it was clearly uh, an analogy for the for the Vietnam War. You have to think about this movie and you know, Cold War, this is this is the era when all the kids are are doing nuclear bomb drills under their desks and like the end of the Eisenhower presidency, we're we're obsessed with the Soviet Union. It's tense times. Is this an allegory or is it strictly were were the Japanese such a did they make such an imprint on us as the enemy that you could still make a like a just patriotic because even the opening credits are like you know like a like a movie from 1944 I mean the only thing missing was in fact isn't there a flag waving at the end I mean it's really yeah it really feels like a propaganda film in a way but it does that thing where it doesn't turn the japanese into caricatures and a bumbling enemy like at at all times i felt like the threat was real and equal in proportion to what the americans could do in either like in either weaponry and and also intelligence yeah i mean the japanese are like kind of unknowable yeah. Because they're not subtitled or anything, but they are super capable and super scary. Like the big reveal at the end that that they are not just hunting one destroyer, but a destroyer that is tag teaming them with a submarine is a big reveal. Like it's a, it's a it's a great twist ending. How'd you like that choice of no subtitles for the Japanese crew? I was surprised by it, and I wondered whether that was the first time that that a movie left the subtitles alone. Yeah, it seemed kind of arty, uh, and and that scene at the end where the two subs both turn off their motors and just are playing a game of like silent chicken that felt pretty arty. And I mean, there there was so much there's so much about this movie that's just like dumb star vehicle for Burt Lancaster. Right, it just feels like kind of cookie cutter out of the studio system. But then scenes like that where it really felt like this, this would be riveting in a contemporary film. Yeah, the, the thing that ruined that scene for me was uh, Clark Gable turning to Burt Lancaster and going, we need to run silent and run deep. <laughs> I love that part. <laughs> that was a little campy. And then he turned to the camera and, and gave a thumbs up and was yeah. like, Ding, and his teeth like had a little glimmer. And remember, kids... I always smoke <laughs> Parliament cigarettes. <laughs> Parliament cigarettes, the cigarettes that will be the cause of my death in a year. The set definitely felt true to life. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. They didn't they didn't uh, gloss it up with with the Hollywood finery. Yeah, it it, it must be a constructed set, right? Because they like, I mean, they didn't film in a real sub. No, but they they did use. Uh, they did use the same submarine that they used in Twenty Thousand Leagues, like as their really? as their film sub. That probably probably was a real World War II sub that did real sub things. This is the era of submarine where they're running it on diesel, right? Like or batteries. Diesel electric, right? So when they're up up on the surface, they have their diesel motor on, 
and they're also charging their batteries. And then as soon as they submerge, they switch to battery power. The nuclear subs can just be underwater for months, right? Right. Six months or something. Sub movies in the nuclear era, the sub spends most of the time underwater. Yeah, it really changes the combat when they're like doing most of the shooting from the surface and then diving to get away, you know? Yeah, right. They 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 do, you know, I think that what what happened in the day was that the subs left Pearl Harbor and they they motored out on the surface to Midway Island. They would refuel the subs and then again they would they're just boats, right? They would motor all the way over until they were yeah, until they saw something they wanted to attack. I didn't understand some of the strategy like when you're just attacking a freighter, why not just Fire the torpedoes and not dive. Freighter can't do anything to you. Like only dive when there's something right. attacking you if you're gonna if you're gonna motor around as a boat. It seemed like sometimes they would just dive just because it was what <laughs> was what it said to do in the manual or something. Early on one of the strategies was to shoot while decks awash, and I thought that was an awesome way to shoot torpedoes because like another ship wouldn't be able to tell what direction the sub was going right they right. all they would see is conning tower decks awash i loved that that turn of phrase too yeah yeah me too it's so it's so sailboaty it's like helms Lee. <laughs> decks awash decks awash always makes me think of that scene where the guy's throwing out the garbage and uh they're and the captain's running all of these tests these dive tests to get their time down and the poor garbage man is stuck out. Yeah. They close the hatch, and he's having to scale the conning tower, and he's, like, beating on the hatch with a wrench to try to get their attention. By the time they get back up to the surface and open the hatch, he's pretty fucked up. Yeah, he's pretty drowned. Yeah, he's in a bad way. But, uh, but that was an interesting... That, this is one of those films that bridges, I think, two eras in Hollywood. Because, again, some of the artfulness of, of some of the later scenes really felt like like we were getting into that new era in Hollywood where movies were realistic and, and, uh, and heavy. And that Mm -hmm. scene of the garbage man, like, like desperately trying to, you know, clang his way into the hatch and, and running up the conning tower, trying to save his life, you know, was a heavy scene in a movie that had, you know, that had heavy moments but the actor that they chose to play that role was a guy that had like big googly eyes like whoa yeah and yeah. he was also the comedic element in other scenes like what did i say what did i say the buffoon garbage man yeah there was a little bit of that scene where the sub was going down and he was like whoa and it was briefly played for laughs before you realize, like, oh, no, this is, this is a bad deal. And then later it plays as tragedy. They really, like, put a lot on the shoulders of that character because he's also the guy whose fault it kind of is that they're being uh, monitored as closely as they are by the Japanese. Like, he, he doesn't sink the, the, the trash well enough. and uh... Yeah, right. He's the, he's, the, he's the missing clue to unravel the, the whole mystery at the, uh, that we didn't even realize was at the heart of the film. The hidden, the hidden mystery behind the hidden revenge fantasy of the crazy old captain. There's a lot of fun moving parts in this cast, right? Like this in big bold letters is supposed to be Clark Gable and Burt Lancaster, but each of them have like sidecar characters that ride along with them. There is yeah. Don fucking Rickles. In his first film role ever. Calm, you know what I mean? No excitement. He just us two fish right down our throat. 
Just like you'd order ham and eggs. Yeah, as sort of Lancaster's side, yeah. like on, on Team Bledsoe. And then there's Jack <laughs> Warden on Agreed, Clark yeah. Gable's side, who was also awesome. And that was a great role for Jack Warden. And, there, and there, that's, there, is a, there are analogous roles to his character, like the wise, because both of those guys were wise enlisted men, right? Like the wise yeah. petty officers. Neither one of them was such a, was such a strong advocate that it ever really felt like two completely hostile teams. Because, mm. you know, everybody would cheer when either captain did something good. You know, it wasn't a thing where, where they were yeah. actively trying to undermine one another. It was just like everybody had their familiar. Everyone is ultimately on team survive the mission. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the goose listed on the IMDb for this film is that when, uh, when Clark Gable is hanging around in his office and they're messing around with model ships on his desk, one of the models is obviously a Ravel kit, likely a model of the USS Missouri, and those would have come out in the mid-50s. They didn't have those models back then. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> what a boner move. <laughs> the big boner for me always in movies of... I mean, I, I think that, that this was the early era of using... of having battle scenes depicted by models uh, semi-realistically. But there's an element, and I'm sure you've noticed it, yeah, whatever uh, it is about water. Yeah, it doesn't scale. It doesn't scale. It does not behave like small water does not behave like big water. Mm, and no. so when you're filming a battleship scene and it's in a pool and there's a big yeah. explosion of water, it just looks like a splash in a puddle. They did a great job with the explosions, though, where there were torpedo yeah. hits. I thought all of the, the boat explosions looked hyper-realistic and cool. They did cut... You know, between those shots and shots of actual yeah. explosions it, at, at the correct scale in the, like, rear projection scenes on the bridge. Those are weird moments where they, where they succeed in suspending disbelief about a model for a, for a brief moment. And what made Star Wars convincing was that they made really big models so that the scale yeah. at least read a little bit with a little bit more detail. Yeah, and also in, in Star Wars, you didn't see Pee Wee Herman's nemesis Francis splashing around in the background. Right. I mean, I know I know who the character is. I'm just not sure what that has to do with Star Wars or Run Silent, Run Deep. He's got all the he's got all the, that giant swimming pool in his house with all the uh, with all the hyper realistic boats in it. You do believe me, don't you, Dad? Well, so in the end, was this movie? Did this movie uh, succeed as a war film? I was blown away at how efficient it was with its tension. Like, I was expecting, you know, 1950s war movie to be a lot of guys running around going, well, you see, we got to shoot the Japs with yeah. these near <laughs> torpedoes, see? And it was, like, serious and sober and good. And, like, I truly felt the tension throughout. Like, I, I thought it succeeded as a war movie for sure, even on, even, like, judged against contemporary war movies. Surprising, especially because the first five or ten minutes are not that tight yeah so so once it gets going it's really going once but, it gets uh, out on the water yeah it's it, it's really interesting i think we're going to probably see this um reoccur throughout the course of watching war movies but if you if you follow the historical sort of reassessment of world war ii uh 
in any way. If you if you follow the uh, the blogs, you know most historians, war scholars, and whatnot feel that from the Battle of Midway on, the Japanese had no chance, and really from Pearl Harbor on, the Japanese never really had a chance. It was just going to be a war of attrition, but eventually, just by the very nature of their productive capacity, their access to oil and raw materials, they could not... Yeah, we could just bury them in steel over time. There was no way that they could maintain their supply and keep that far-flung empire if they ever picked a fight with the United States. And, you know, that was Yamamoto's famous, you know, famous thing where he just did not want to attack America because from the moment you did, it was just a matter of time. So with that, and, and, and in Europe, it's sort of the same thing, right? I mean, as soon as, as soon as Hitler invaded Poland, if you do any kind of calculation, math calculation, there's just not really a scenario where he could prevail. And certainly the moment he invaded Russia, there was just no way he was going to pull it off. But even, even without invading Russia, there just, he just couldn't, the, the clock was ticking, you know? What's amazing about these films is that the general feeling during the war was that they were a formidable adversary and at any moment the tide could turn. And that's true in this film, too. Like you're saying, the, the, uh, the Japanese Navy seems formidable and the subs and the American effort in general seems tenuous. But from a, you know, from a zoomed out perspective, it's like, yeah, well, if this sub had sunk... We're making subs 50 a month. It's not like the American effort ever hung in the balance. As a filmmaking challenge, though, do you think the degree of difficulty is greater when it's a submarine film versus a European theater film where, you know, the scenes are so big and there's like a thousand people charging a beach? Like, this is, these compositions are man in tube, you know? And so (laughs) for that reason, I felt like, I felt like, the tension was better than it should have been, you know, like it's, it seems like a far more difficult thing to pull off, but it's like, it's a creative constraint, you know, like if you can show, if you can show an entire town, you know, that's been shelled to death and we're running around from building to building, you know, if you, if you've got the budget for it, I'm, I'm going to sit in your theater and watch it. But if you can, uh, if you can build real palpable tension, when you can't even see what's going on outside the the ship. I mean, that's, uh, I feel like that's, that's the kind of thing that has drawn so many filmmakers to the submarine film, I think. Yeah. yeah and I guess it's true of every war film. And that's going to be interesting as, as our show continues on, which is that every, Oh, I thought this was the last episode. It might be if you keep talking no? that way, <laughs> but, uh, but every war film is, very personal we get to know a handful of people and it's about their personal struggle to stay alive and complete the mission and yet war is completely impersonal and in general men are moved about during war in blocks and the commanding officers don't know them and lose them by the thousands and you know kind of mourn them over a over like a scotch and soda at the end of the night but it's not you know, like war and war movies are are trading in very different currencies. Did you have a favorite scene, John? Huh. I, yeah, I really feel like the um, 
the appearance of the Japanese submarine and the yeah. brief shots of the crew, the captain and the crew of the Japanese submarine, who are here in like the very last act of this film, and we're seeing them for the first time. We didn't even know they existed. Yeah. yeah. We're seeing them for the first time, and yet those shots in the in their sub are suggestive of a whole other film that mm. would be happening in that submarine. You know, they're not at all caricatures. They are super riveted and riveting. There's this back and forth shot where it's the captain and his executive officer of the American sub and who are clearly the captain and the exec of the Japanese sub. And it's flashing between the two, like two heads, two heads, two heads, two heads. And they're both just listening to silence, trying to, yeah. just trying, to, you know, waiting for the other guy to start his motor first. And it was just like, whoa, where did this movie come from? Yeah. Like suddenly we're in a, we're in a hunt for red October, two subs battling in under the ocean. And I didn't see, it wasn't, it wasn't foreshadowed in the film at all up until that point. That was a perfectly tense scene. I really like the contrast between the two crews, like on the American sub, it it looks very sweaty. Yep. People are in t-shirts. Yep. But over on the yeah. Japanese sub, like they're wearing officers' jackets. Yeah, and they yeah. all had they're really buttoned they up. They all had hats on. Yeah. It was yeah. like hats, no hats, hats, no hats. That's how you could tell the difference. There was a degree of like sober professionalism uh, that it also just made them unknowable as an enemy in that way as well. They weren't betraying any emotion the same way that the Americans were. And you got a sense that the Japanese sub was more disciplined, that they did not have yeah. tension between an unhinged, too old captain who had <laughs> sustained a mysterious head injury that was gradually killing him, but not in a way that affected his ability to, to advance the, the firing solution. <laughs> Say what you will about the Japanese Navy, but they chose captains of an appropriate age. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> a guy that commands respect among the whole crew, and there's not any, you know, there's not a lot yeah. of, like, jockeying around. Uh, what, what was your favorite scene? I mean, it's 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 close. I you know they they sort of start telegraphing this when um, when he first gets bonked on the head that he's kind of obsessed with this sonar signal that or not sonar a uh, Morse code signal that they pick up, and it was it was it was elegantly done because it poses that as the as the new mystery now that the uh, garbage mystery has been solved, and yet like. I could not come up with what it was going to be, you know, and it's uh, like the best twist endings are ones that you kind of like are bracing yourself for, but you can't predict. So when, uh, when he puts it together and like, uh, runs up to the bridge and it, it you know, before he even tells them what's going on, he's t telling them like, like, get the F out of here. <laughs> There's about to be a torpedo coming. Uh, it was, it was just great, you know, and the, that reveal is so good. Like I love, I love seeing the tumblers fall into place in his in his yeah. soon to be dead brain. <laughs> well, the the first because they went back to him lying in his bed listening to the like, what is that? I can't identify it, Captain. What is that? I can't identify it, Captain. Yeah. And the first time or maybe two, I thought that that was just a scene indicating that he was losing his marbles. Yeah, like, I, right. I did not perceive that to be him laying there processing it until about the third time when I was like, okay, this is either really bad 
this is you know, like it's unnecessary. We already know that he has a tragic injury that kills him. <laughs> like that that could be explained by the doctor, but he doesn't have time. Uh, but then I think it was when they started to receive that signal again on the bridge, and they were like, "What the hell is this?" And then it cut to him still churning on it. I was like, "Oh, this is a plot twist." Adam, do you got one? Yeah, um, my favorite scene was about a quarter of the way through when, you know, uh, Richardson's running all these drills and no one really knows why until the moment where the captain sets the course for, God, what was the thing called? The Bungo Straits, like Sector 7. So, like, at this point, people feel like their mission is just to head out there and shoot whatever's out there and then until their torpedoes are exhausted and they come home. But the realization that... Lancaster has as to their to their course and that it's sort of going against the orders that they have there's a confrontation in in the map closet between them and Gable and Lancaster are just like trading verbal haymakers yeah in this scene it's short but it's so sharp we're through playing with lives captain this boat's had it it's the end of the line why because a torpedo went wild oh you know yourself that's a hundred to one an accident the whole Japanese air force dropping everything it's got. That's an accident, too. I don't watch a lot of classic movies, and I never have. Like, I really got into movies starting with, like, the 70s movies, and I started watching from there. And I love movies, but I just don't have... I don't have a catalog of films from this era that I can draw from as, like, things that I really appreciate. And so, like, Clark Gable and Burt Lancaster could be really anyone to me. Like, I, they aren't, like the Hollywood deities that they are to so many others. But like, I really grew from this scene to like, understand how great they were. And I really love the scene and I really love them in it. What's really interesting about the two guys too, is that Clark Gable was famously a conservative, a Hollywood, like a, uh, like a Clint Eastwood, John Wayne style, Republican, Mm. politically Republican. And Burt Lancaster was a very vocal liberal and civil rights activist and anti-Vietnam war guy throughout the sixties and seventies. So they were, you know, they were very different people. They weren't just a sort of homogenous Hollywood type. I kind of feel like that stuff does intrude when you're, you know, when you're acting and living with somebody. Yeah. Like when your life's philosophy is diametrically opposed to someone else's and you have to you know, inhabit a scene with them. I don't know if you can help but have a little bit of that leak out. Like, I, I went into this movie thinking it would be cheese, but that scene, like, made me snap up and, like, pay attention that this was this was not going to be a cheesy 50s Hollywood war, war movie. It was going to be, like, serious and good. Well, on that note, and in that scene in particular, this is a thing that you see in a lot of war movies from that era in particular, like post-World War II, which is that the subordinate officer or the crew questions the orders of their superior officer. And like in in Saving Private Ryan, um, when Tom Hanks orders them to take the machine gun nest and the crew rebels, right? um, Tom Hanks does have some rationale. You know, he says, even though it's completely fatalistic, mm-hmm. his, you know, his rationale is just like, well, you're going to live forever, or, you know, aren't you scared every day, or whatever, we're here, and we got to, 
you know, we're going to leave this machine gun nest to shoot the next guys? Like, he offers some kind of meh, but it is an answer. And in this movie, and like a lot of movies where that where it's a real super tough guy yeah. era of Hollywood stars, Burt Lancaster is coming after him at the beginning of the film, like, you know, why'd you run chicken from that first Japanese sub? Like, what the hell? Why aren't we in the fight? And Gable gives him nothing, just looks at him. And Burt Lancaster kind of gets the last word three or four times, like walks out and says, well, you know, this sub's never never been a chicken shit sub before and kind of turns <laughs> and walks out. And Gable just just kind of eh, doesn't seems unaffected. You learn later that he's got a plan, but that but that kind of uh, back and forth between two guys is so personally alien to me. Mm. Yeah, uh, because no one would walk out of my house and say, you know, well, you're a chicken shit commander of this house, <laughs> without me following them out onto the porch and going, you know what, you know what, I've got a plan, and to to be living in a world where either that's just a thing that's happening in films or whether that was really the style of tough guy it, it it really it it stuck out to me as a as the first half of the film kind of relied on the fact that the audience at the time would accept the fact that Clark Gable just didn't feel like he needed to explain yeah he's the captain i thought it was interesting that they instilled that in the captain of the American ship and also made the antagonists act very, very similarly. You know, those were the same qualities that they had. Not a lot of explanation, Mm -hmm. not a lot of running around, more, more quiet confidence. Guys, let's start to adopt some of that into our own lives. If I felt like I knew what the fuck was going on or what I was doing ever, (laughs) I feel like I could do that. Ben, who's your guy? Were you are you the garbage man then? The guy <laughs> the guy who's running around throwing out the garbage, getting locked out of the sub? I really identified with the guy whose birthday was the seventh and he uh, selected that as their patrol in the in the ship pool. Ensign Towhead. Um, yeah, he um he's like a he's like a newbie and he doesn't know how superstitious everybody is. And um I feel like I, I I really felt for that guy. Like so many times in my life, I've like been the new guy on the on the team, or or uh, you know, like stuck with a, a group uh, for a project at school that I didn't know that well, and and just put my foot in it in a way that I could never have predicted. Um, right right out of the gate, just the first yeah, day. Yeah, and everybody feels like I've I have completely fucked them. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, like he uh, accidentally gets his, his Rwange <laughs> on, a, on a very small scale. Uh, that, that was my guy. That's a great guy. How about you guys? My guy was going to be Ensign Towhead, uh, but that you picked him first forces me to go to my second choice. <laughs> Your backup guy? I want to say Rickles because, God, like it was, it was amazing to see him. It was a surprise to see him especially so soon after his death, like, and that he was such a brilliant actor, I thought was, I guess shouldn't be a surprise because so often uh, comics end up being really good actors, I find. But Rickles is not my guy. My guy instead is the Jack Warden character because 
a couple of times he's standing up for Richardson, which is sort of the wrong horse, right? He's standing up for the wrong guy, and he's getting shit on for it. And I uh, I can think of a couple of times in my own life where I've done that. Like, you, uh, you, you stand up for a friend against some other friends, and you end up losing some friends in that process. And, like, that's no fun. But, like, sometimes in a scene like this, uh, in a setting like this, you got to choose sides. And Mueller's side... I think in the end is is vindicated because you know the OG captain ends up being uh, the hero they all maybe didn't expect. But there are a couple of tense scenes where Mueller's backing him, and the crew is not happy, and you aren't really sure what the end game is going to be for him. Because once he gets painted as like Richardson's guy, and the entire crew isn't, that's a tough spot. Well, I was going to say Jack Warden. But uh, you've done such an eloquent job, Adam, and I know that you know. Many times in our lives together, you have stuck up for me when it's turned out I was the wrong captain. <laughs> I've been I've been the wrong captain many times, and uh, and that has you know you've taken a lot of heat for it. That uh, my reference to that was not specifically about you at all, for the record. <laughs> but but like in totality, there's socially there's a lot of times where you got to ride for someone. And yeah. and it, and it's not right or wrong. It's just a choice you have to make in that moment. So I am going to, my guy is going to be Rickles. Yeah. Um, because, like, a couple of things, right? First of all, Rickles was 32 years old. Wow. But looked like the oldest guy in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> because Don Rickles looked like an old guy when he was, like, 11. I was, I, I looked at him and I was like, God, that guy looks just like Don Rickles. I wonder who it really is. <laughs> <laughs> so he's 32, but also Rickles did this amazing thing, right? Which is that he was a comedic character, but also was a serious member of the crew doing a serious job. He was serious when he needed to be serious. He looked scared when he needed to be scared. Like it was, when he came on the scene, I thought he was going to be like googly-eyed garbage man guy. Yeah. Yeah. Where this movie just didn't know what it wanted to be, and it was, you know, like... Um, he didn't call anybody a hockey puck. Like, not no, one he person. He was never like, hey, I'm out of here. You know, he was he was <laughs> really in the film. Well, what a great choice by him to take the role, and a great choice by the casting director to put him in it. Because he was just the right speed throughout. Yeah, and I think that let him sit on Johnny Carson's couch and not just be... Uh, red buttons. Yeah, there's a certain credibility you get from doing something like this as your first film. Jeez, we've got to we've got to select what our next movie is going to be, and um, we have 23 things on the list. So, um, John, do you want to uh, do you want to pick a, a random number again? What is number 13? Number 13 is Flying Leathernecks. It's a, a Jan Wayne movie. Oh, it is. Well, we got to get started. Getting through those. <laughs> Looking forward to it. So we'll be back next week with that film. Uh, this is going to be a, another film that uh, presumably... See, Leatherneck is a Marine, so flying Leathernecks, right? I've already put it together. It's about the Marines <laughs> mm-hmm. in airplanes. And we know uh, that the Marines only really flew airplanes in combat in the Pacific Theater. Right. So we know this is another movie where the enemy is going to be the japanese you've done a lot of math that i would have been incapable of doing well there there we are that's why that's my role on this podcast to to 
remark upon following things. What year was the movie made? How young or old were the actors? <laughs> and what, what was the what was the contemporary uh, context that made this movie something other than what it what it was? Yeah, this, the Flying Leathernecks is a 1951 film, and uh, I believe Run Silent Run Deep was 1958. So, yeah, we're, we're a lot uh, closer to the source. Yeah. Well, that should be interesting. Uh, I'll see you guys next week. Guess, uh, I guess that's just about it. So that's all. Thanks for your attention. Da, 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 da. As they abruptly cut to the scene where they dump our podcast into the water, buried at sea. <laughs> <laughs> Friendly Fire is a MaximumFun.org podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica, Benjamin R. Harrison, and John Roderick. Produced by Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you'd like to continue the conversation online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter, at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and Rob is at Rob K. Schulte. Support the production of Friendly Fire by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.